You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. War, but those people who made the decisions, and in general, anyone in authority. The zeal to question authority then seemed to devolve into question everything. And this attitude of questioning everything, it seemed and seems to marry well with the individualism already present in our national mindset. And to many of us, it has become sort of a default where we would subconsciously question authority, whether it made sense or not. Now, to be clear, what I am not saying is don't think for yourself. You must think for yourself. In fact, questioning things, outcomes, and asking why things are the way they are for the right reasons is a good thing. It's the right thing, even just to know why. Even better, it's good and imperative for us to question, especially we want to right a wrong. We've been given a mind to think, church, We've been given a mind to think, to ask questions, to reason. God invites us to do that. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together. And some translations say, let us dispute. In other words, God is inviting us in to engage with him. Now what I bring up in my brief critique of question authority when it's done with rebellious intent, and that's the difference, when it's done with rebellious intent, and especially as we see it in its contemporary expression, magnified and multiplied, not just through the technology of social media, but also manifested in new laws and policies, many of which go against natural law and sometimes just don't seem to make sense. But why I bring it up, is because it's not a new phenomenon. Questioning authority didn't start last century during the Vietnam War. It started in the garden. The one true authority who was in love, in his love and wisdom, had made all that there was in its beautiful perfection in the Garden of Eden was questioned. Not to find out why or to learn more, but was questioned by his own creation because they were tempted and they saw the authority not as one who had lovingly and tenderly provided for them, but as one who through the distortion of their own sin, they saw God as unnecessary. It was supreme idolatry, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, Because as the first humans who were created, they were co-regents. They were meant to rule and reign with God on earth. But they saw themselves as deserving more to be literally wise in their own eyes. And because of their sin, everything changed. So knowing the story of rebellion, as we've learned from Genesis where all of creation became subject to the decay and death in all of its forms, because Adam and Eve questioned God and his authority, God, in his authority, showed a grace unthinkable. 
and he gave his creation hope. Hope in the same chapter in Genesis where the world plunged into depth and despair, where innocence gave way to shame, beauty became corrupted, and life was now subject to death. Hope was given in the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, where the seed of the woman would save mankind and all of creation, and this hope came in the person of Jesus. Now, as we've transitioned from Genesis into the gospel of Matthew, we see the promise of God. We see the hope of God prophesied through the centuries, throughout all of the Old Testament, and revealed now to us in Matthew. As you recall, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing the promise of God and preserving the line of Abraham through David and onto Jesus, proving his legitimacy as the promised king. And then Matthew continues his presentation of Jesus in his early life, from Bethlehem to Egypt and then on to uh, Nazareth. And he's doing this to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophets. He then declares or describes Jesus' baptism, identifying with us, Jesus identifying with us in his baptism, but doing so not for our, his sins, but ultimately for ours. He was obedient as a way to fulfill all righteousness. And then, to continue his fulfilling the promise of deliverance, Jesus qualifies himself by being subjected to temptation far beyond any temptation that we could have resisted. His was the self-denial that qualified him as being perfect in obedience. Then, as a great light has dawned to give hope and healing, Jesus speaks life. He speaks life through the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And as he spoke with authority because the law was misinterpreted by so many, he spoke with authority because it was his own. Because Christ himself was a lawgiver and he was the only one who could fulfill it. And then as we have seen in the first half of chapter 8, Matthew presents Jesus full of grace and power and compassion, casting out demons and healing all who were sick with his word. Again, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, to prove once again that God is real, God is near, and God is with us. Now, throughout Matthew's gospel, as he shows us who Jesus is in doing so, Matthew is showing that we can't just see Jesus as one person to just be admired. We are called to see Jesus as one to be believed in and trusted. As one to be believed in and trusted. And that's what Matthew is continuing to do here in our passage this morning. And that's my aim this morning that he presents Jesus as the one true authority. I want us to see in this passage for us this morning, including this preacher, that Jesus is the one true authority, and he is the one true authority for all the reasons we need him to be. Jesus Christ is the one true authority for all the reasons we need him to be. And Matthew makes that point this morning through three distinct but related accounts. The first, in verse 18 in our text, through 22, it's a scene, scene one, if you will, 
that introduces us to the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus is, he's up front about the cost of following him. In this scene, we do have two proposals, but we have one response. Even though Jesus responds to both with different answers, it really is one response. It's two sides of the same coin. And we'll see that as we move through these verses. Uh, We open up in verse 18 where we see the crowds who are following Jesus everywhere he goes. And we can't blame him, can we? Or we can't blame them. Because he preached with words that had implications for every area of life. Again, with such authority that it had to elicit a response. Great crowds, Matthew says, followed him down from the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount. And with the miracles that he performed, no doubt the crowds increased. His fame was increasing. And you could picture all of that with the crowds pressing in from all over. And so Jesus, in giving orders to go to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it reveals to us both his divinity and his humanness. He recognized that not all who follow are sincere and faithful. Popularity and huge numbers on the part of the followers, it's not always an indication of virtue or of faithfulness. Jesus knew this. And at the same time, he was no doubt getting tired physically, mentally, emotionally. And so here we have the scribe as... Jesus was approaching the shore to get into the boat. A scribe approached Jesus and he offered to follow him, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good, right? I mean, isn't this the response that Jesus is seeking? Well, to answer that, let's take a look at a few things, some contextual clues and also some historical background to help us understand the scribe's proposal to Jesus. First, what is a scribe? A scribe in that day were men who were teachers of the law and they were associated closely with the Pharisees. You'll hear them mentioned in conjunction with one another. They're described as educated, rigorous in their adherence to the law as they interpreted it, and such that it set them apart from the Gentiles. But the motivation to do so was not to give witness to God or even to help those that they were teaching, but their motivation was primarily to draw attention to themselves. As one scholar wrote, their piety was reduced to external formalism. Life under them became a burden. Avoiding their own teaching of the law and developing their own traditions, they became an instrument for preventing true access to God, hence the Lord's stern denunciations of them. And at the end of chapter 7, when Matthew ends his account of Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, you recall that the crowds were astonished. Why? Because Jesus' teaching was with authority and not as the scribes, not as the scribes. Because Matthew draws out this contrast, and this contrast is consistent with how Jesus knew the hearts of the scribes who thought highly of themselves. And they were more willing to accept the adulation and the recognition for their 
brand of faithfulness. That is a scribe. Not very flattering, is it? But second, let's take a look at how the scribe addresses Jesus and why that is important. The scribe calls Jesus teacher. Now, throughout Matthew's gospel, when he mentions teacher, that was a title that the unbelieving leaders called Jesus. Very important distinction here. It was used by the Pharisees and the scribe as, a, as an opening to test Jesus, not always to show the appropriate respect. So now, even as the scribe may have meant well, him calling Jesus teacher, it lacked the understanding of Jesus' authority. One commentator, he puts it this way, the title teacher is accurate, but it's not adequate. The zeal with which the scribe proposed that he will follow Jesus wherever he will go, it was ambitious. But even in the ambition of the scribe, the commitment he professed would never match what the commitment would require. And Jesus knew this. Look in verse 20 of Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is the first time that Jesus uses his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. And I want to share a few things about it. It's very important to help explain this passage. You recall in our call to worship the prophet Daniel, he has this vision of the Son of Man. And describes him first as one who comes with the clouds of heaven. And second, he describes him as coming with a dominion that has an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And then third, he is worshipped by all the people. These are three very clear distinctions that declare the Son of Man's deity. And throughout Israel's history, the Hebrews, they understood this and they knew this. So this was not lost on the crowd, especially the scribe. Also, the title Son of Man does indicate through the human-like characteristics that Daniel uses in chapter 7 that he is, in fact, human. And so we have descriptions of deity and descriptions of a man. Who other than Jesus is fully God and fully man? In his uniqueness and by virtue of his title, the Son of Man, Jesus alone is the authority which requires full allegiance. One more thing, and I think this is critical for us to understand. Matthew opens up to us an aspect that is so astounding, and perhaps the the impact of it gets lost in the familiarity of this A verse, in all of Jesus' authority, as the Son of Man, in his acceptance of worship, his creating all that we see and all that we don't see, in his sovereignty and in his power, Jesus is humble. He is humble. And this is not a a feigned humility to draw out sympathy. 
It's a statement of fact that he has lowered himself to be with us. And Jesus' supreme desire is not comfort in this temporary life, but by all means necessary, he subjected himself to all required suffering and sacrifice to gain the eternal for us. And it reasonably follows, church, that a disciple of Jesus will do the same. As Craig Blomberg notes, at a deeper level, Jesus' disciples must recognize that no location on earth affords a true home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and life on earth is lived as strangers, as exiles in this world. More succinctly, Jesus says later in Matthew's gospel, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now there's a second offer, proposal here. It's from the disciple. And he says in verse 21, another of disciples says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So again, at first reading, this sounds reasonable. My father has passed. I need to take care of his burial. And in fact, he addresses Jesus as Lord, so we need to give him some credit, right? First observation. If his father has indeed passed, what is he doing following Jesus from village to village and from miracle to miracle? Levitical law and Jewish custom requires that he bury his father the same day as his death. So this request, may not, this request may not be as forthright as we think it is. In fact, many scholars believe this request uses an idiom intended to say something like, well, let me take care of my father until he dies. Let me go first bury my father is meant to say, let me go take care of my father until he passes. Now, at worst, that would mean he's intending to take care of his father until he dies so that he could inherit his estate. The clear inference is, I need to have provision for myself, Jesus, so until then, I can't follow you. At best, this would mean that I do need to take care of my father, but until then, I am all yours. Now, either way, this idiom, let me first go bury my father, would indicate at the very least a postponement of him following Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, follow me. And in the Greek original language, it means keep following me. What Jesus is saying That convenience, he's saying that convenience and comfort, pride, especially in the case of the scribe, all the things that the world is up to and including the spiritually dead must come after me. Following Jesus does not deny the practical needs of life, though it just may, but it does entail having him and the affairs of his kingdom as the priority. Jesus emphasized this in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things, the necessities of life, 
shall be added to you. In the end, what we see in Jesus' response, both to the scribe and to the disciple, is really one response, as I said, and that is this, that our recognition and submission to Jesus' authority is such that following him is to be done on his terms, not ours. Following Jesus, being his disciple, practicing the obedience of faith, entering into the suffering that we are guaranteed to experience, and serving others with a sacrificial love. In other words, when it's inconvenient. All of this requires a power that is beyond us. Following Jesus requires a power that is beyond us. And we'll see why that is absolutely necessary as we move on to the next two scenes. We'll see where Jesus leads those who follow him. Scene two, the storm. Take a look at verse 23. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And when they woke him, saying, and then they woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. This is quite a remarkable scene, isn't it? There's a storm, a great storm. And the Greek word for, the, for swamped, it, means, it actually means to hide or to cover. So waves were either breaking up over the boat, slamming into the boat, and they were higher than the boat. So this was not a small storm. It was a great storm. But the boat was not a big boat. It was a small boat. And it's interesting to note here, the disciples, they were not unfamiliar with the Sea of Galilee and the typical storms that would come up from time to time. They knew this. They experienced this. So put together, the experience of the fishermen and the fact that the storm was so great, you could see how that led to the cry for help. They said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And they meant it. Now, what's equally remarkable is all the while Jesus was, what? Asleep. And I hope you aren't right now. (laughs) All the while Jesus was asleep. Now, many commentators do say that Jesus was exhausted from all the ministry he did throughout the town surrounding Capernaum. Again, his humanity. But now being awakened by the disciples and their cry for help, his response is telling. Look at verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? As Jesus calls us to follow him, he leads us into places and situations in ministry that test us. And sometimes it's for reasons that we may only know after the fact, or sometimes we may only know when we see him face to face. But what Jesus is saying here in his rebuke of the disciples is that he is always looking for us to trust him, to place our faith in him, and to believe that he is who he says he is. He is our provider. He is our shield. He is our refuge. He is our strong 
tower. The righteous run into it. And we are safe. He is our portion forever. He is our savior. He is our hope. He is our Lord. In this world, we will have tribulation. Great trouble. Some of it even of our own making. But be encouraged. Jesus has overcome the world. Believe in me, he says. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because Emmanuel, God is with us. And whether it's by correction to protect us, his rod and his staff comfort us. Even in the presence of our enemies, he prepares a table before us. He is our protector and our provider. And here is where the authority of Jesus, when we need it most, in the midst of calamity, in the middle of the storm, his authority is on display so that we may increase our faith in him. Jesus in his authority is not reactionary. He is responsive. And church, that is a grace. That is a grace that when he hears us, he acts on our behalf. Second half of verse 26. Then Jesus rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. There was great calm. Jesus has authority over the natural realm, over all creation. Upon Jesus' rebuke, there was no gradual reduction in the wind and the waves. It was immediate, and the calm was real. And the men marveled, saying in verse 27, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? No doubt. No doubt they marveled. They were awestruck. From seemingly impending death to now peace and calm. It was unbelievable. And yet it happened. The word that rebuked the waves also accomplished the purpose of increasing the faith of the disciples. The word that rebuked the waves also accomplished the purpose of increasing the faith of his disciples disciples now as the sea was calm and they were approaching the shore the shore I could picture that perhaps that they were talking amongst themselves in the aftermath the disciples were reminded of the creation story you remember back in Genesis in the beginning the power of God on full display where out of chaos God hovered over the waters and brought order this miracle and authority over the natural realm, the natural realm which is tainted by sin, it's distorted by the fall, and that's evidenced by the destruction of storms. This authority over nature points, I believe, to what Christ will accomplish in the new creation through his resurrection. 
He is the new humanity, and he is the new creation. Jesus, the one true authority for all the reasons we need him to be. Scene three, the deliverance. Our final scene. It's one where Jesus exercises his authority over the supernatural realm. Verse 28 in our passage. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. The demons knew their ultimate fate. And they were intent on unleashing all the forces of hell in this world to God's people. And yet they also knew who they were subject to. And so, the demons, in their submitting to the one true authority, they begged him to be cast out into the herd of pigs in verse 30. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And here's what I want us to see in the next verse. Jesus, in exercising his authority and power, and in one word, he simultaneously judges the demons and he saves those that he called. He simultaneously, in one word, judges the demons and he saves those who he has called. And do you remember, the demons were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Jesus goes where no one else can go. Jesus speaks a word that no one else can speak, and he accomplishes a deliverance that no one else can. Verse 32, and he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. The demon-possessed men were freed. They were saved. And what does Jesus receive in return? Not a hero's welcome, but outright rejection. It's interesting to note how far gone the townspeople were because the same word used of the demons begging was the same word used by the townspeople begging Jesus to leave. Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Church, we saw the authority of Jesus with a scribe and the disciples' proposals, did we not? where Jesus invites us to follow him on his terms. And we saw the authority of Jesus over the natural realm, rebuking the wind and the sea, offering the disciples all the more reason to trust and have faith in him. 
And we just saw the authority of Jesus over the supernatural realm. Exercising demons from two men with one word. Now the reaction, of course, is sad. Because it's from those who don't believe because they trust in the things of this world. They built their house on sinking sand. And so they rejected his authority. And great will be their fall. How so? Take a look at Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You remember the scene in our call to worship in Daniel. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the geep, excuse me, <laughs> separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come to me, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But in verse 41, to those who have rejected his authority, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus concludes this in verse 46 of that same passage of Matthew 25. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the righteous, the ones who have believed in Christ and his atoning work for me and for you, the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the time that the demons spoke of when Christ expelled them from the two men. So the question, the question this morning for us in the here and now, excuse me, is what about us? What does this mean for us today? In Christ's authority, he offers us grace. When we are weak, his grace is sufficient for us. When we need discipline, the authority of his word corrects us. And when we confess, the authority of his word gives us assurance of his forgiveness. But what keeps us from giving our all to him? As Alec prayed, the first commandment, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What areas of our life do we hold back and why? Our thought life, the way we spend money, the way we treat others. What prevents us from submitting all of that to the authority of Jesus? Whatever identity we assume, and I understand our identity is in Christ, but in fact we are certain other things as well. That's how God created us. But whatever identity we assume in terms of vocation, what we do for a living, 
our relational status, married, single, divorced, even in our brokenness, our identity, socially, generationally, economically, our academic achievement, our identity racially and culturally, nationally, politically. As far as events, whether it's a pandemic or an election, a despot's invasion of another country, the threat of nuclear war, or rising interest rates. We all fall under the authority of Jesus. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Now when I said in Christ's authority, he offers us his grace, this is what that means. This is what that means. When Christ, in Christ's authority, when he offers us his grace, he is offering us himself. He's not offering grace as a commodity, as something separate. Jesus Christ is offering us himself. Before he and his authority as a shepherd who renders final judgment, which we just read in Matthew 25, he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who subjected himself to the judgment on our behalf. In John 10, verse 11, John 10, verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then he says in verse 17 and 18 of John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the authority for all the reasons we need him to be. We needed him to lay down his life for us. He calmed the seas with the authority of his word. Yet it was the waters of judgment he subjected himself to. By dying on the cross and taking on the judgment for our sin. And then he took up his life again when he resurrected. And when he did, he rendered the very effects of sin powerless by defeating death and the devil. In conquering sin and death and Satan through his resurrection, he is now the forerunner of our faith. He is the first fruits of our salvation. What does that mean? It means that the rebellious questioning of authority that Adam had for God in the garden was not simply washed away. It was judged. It was judged. The wrath of God against the sin that I have committed and that you have committed is not only satisfied by Christ laying down his life for us, but now the Father is pleased with us. Our restoration with God is made whole. As we exercise our faith in Christ, we submit to the authority of Jesus. 
the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel brings about in us the obedience of faith. And church, what does God's word say? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Jesus is the one true authority. He is the new Adam. He is the king. He is the judge. He is our savior. And he is our Lord. He is our protector. And he is our provider. He is the beginning and the end. And his kingdom, his rule and his reign will be forever. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He is bidding you to come. Follow me. Jesus is inviting you. Many of us are weary. There are times when I am weary. And Jesus tells me and he tells you, Take my yoke upon me. Learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Obey. Jesus says, I am telling you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Come to him by faith. Come to him by faith so that on that day, you too will hear, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, through Christ's humble obedience, his death on the cross for our sake, you have rightly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. Because you have loved us so. Because you have given us your son. Lord, may we love you in return. And submit to Jesus and follow him for our good and for your glory. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen.